We are going to be reading from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now you may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you and good to be with you today. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here at Disciples, and we are so glad that you're with us today. If you're not already there, if you could turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're continuing on in our, in our series. We spent three w- weeks looking at what the gospel is. If we had to define the gospel, kind of boil it down to its essential pieces, how would we define what the gospel is? And then ultimately talking about who, who it was that Christ pursued, what he's enabled in us. And now we've kind of moving on to the second portion of this nine-week series where we're talking about what it is uh, that Jesus Christ has done in us by virtue of the gospel. How has he enabled us for the work of ministry? What has he called us to? And specifically today, we're going to talk about the idea of spiritual gifts. And so as I say those words, the question that I want to pose to you is this, what runs through your mind when you hear the phrase spiritual gifts? Answer in your mind, not out loud. Because my guess is there's probably as many answers to that question as there are people in this room. That phrase in and of itself is a loaded one, especially depending on your background. There might be all kinds of things that are running through uh, your head. For some people, they just think about spiritual gifts in the sense of the public-facing gifts of the church. So preaching and teaching and evangelism, those sorts of things. They think about the public expressions of the gifts of the Spirit. One person standing in front of the room talking to a room full of people. They view that as the spiritual gifts for other people. They think of a very particular example. Maybe your mind goes to somebody in your life who's been very impactful, who's blessed you, who's come alongside you in times of difficulty, who's given you words that have touched you in such a way that they change the course of certain aspects of your life. They've served you in a way that was deep and meaningful. And for other people, maybe your mind jumps immediately to the controversy surrounding the conversations of the spiritual gifts, specifically the ones that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and the way that those gifts find their expression in various churches and denominations. But our hope in this morning, at least among other things, is to, one, remove a little bit of the veil of mystery surrounding these things, and two, to see what it is that God actually wants to do in and through us, both individually and collectively as a body at Disciples Church. 
our tendency, I think, most often as we think about spiritual gifts is to view them through the same lens that we think about skill sets and personalities. So to put a fine point on that, we tend to think of preachers as somebody who can get up and they're verbose and they're fine with talking for 30, 40, 45, 50 minutes at a time, and they're comfortable being in front of people. And so we just kind of ascribe, if you're somebody who's drawn to public speaking, you must be a teacher inherently. And that's kind of how we have a tendency to view the spiritual gifts. That's certainly what I found when I went online over the last couple of weeks and looked at a bunch of different spiritual gift assessments. Uh, There's all of these assessments and tests that you can take online, and so they kind of do this thing where they say, if you like this, you might be interested in this. And they can be helpful, but they're certainly incomplete, because if you look at those, I'm just going to give you at least three examples. Here's one that I came across that I thought was interesting. If you like to bake, you might have the gift of hospitality. Maybe. Or maybe you just like baking and you really like to do it alone and you actually don't like people that much. If more than 10% of your income goes to Christian ministry, maybe you have the gift of generosity. Certainly that might be true of some. But what do you do, for instance, the, 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 the examples that we have throughout Scripture of people who gave even in their poverty with a heart of generosity? If you like to speak in public settings, maybe you have the gift of teaching. There's all of these different examples. But the problem with those tests, at least to the extent that they can be helpful, is that they have the effect of leading people to what's most comfortable or familiar. In other words, they're limited in their scope, and they they can potentially miss giftings that need to be worked out and discovered in the lives of believers. They communicate that you only need to serve in a role or with the responsibilities that you initially like the things that are comfortable, the things that are familiar, and that may or may not be the case. So, for instance, when we look at Scripture and we look at how God has used different people throughout the course of the Bible, you come across people like Moses. God comes to Moses through the burning bush. He speaks to him in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4, and he says, I want you to lead my people out of the nation, uh, out of, the nation of, of Egypt. I want you to free my people, and I want you to take them into a land that I'm going to prepare for you. And here is Moses' response in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. In other words, you can go back in my life as far as you want or from the moment that you spoke to me, I still don't have enough words to string together in a way that actually makes sense. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Slow of speech and tongue, yet he becomes the most significant leader in Israel's history. We have this example again in the New Testament with Paul himself, who's actually writing this letter. Paul, who is a brilliant theologian by anybody's measure. All you have to do is read through the book of Romans, particularly Romans 7 through 9, to get an insight into the person of Paul and his ability to parse incredibly difficult ideas, his ability to communicate in a way that is unparalleled. And yet we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul describing himself, and he describes his own bodily presence, and he says, when I stand in front of people, my presence is weak and my speech is unimpressive. 
Yet this weak-looking, unimpressive man becomes the most effective evangelist the world has ever known. Now, how in the world can that be? Because their effectiveness for ministry was not dependent on their personalities, their looks, their experience, or their education. It was dependent on the God who equipped them for the work that he had called them to do. I came across this quote while I was reading over the last couple of weeks, and it's one that I think is incredibly helpful and insightful. I'm going to read it slowly because I think there's a lot here, but I think it'll be helpful as we, as we dive into this topic today. Here's the quote. There's a crucial principle we need to understand from the outset. Spiritual gifts are not God bestowing to his people something external to himself. They are not some tangible stuff or substance separable from God. Spiritual gifts are nothing less than God himself in us, energizing our souls, imparting revelation to our minds, infusing power in our wills, and working his sovereign and gracious purposes through us. Spiritual gifts must never be viewed deistically, as if a God out there has sent something to us down here. Spiritual gifts are God present in, with, and through human thoughts, human deeds, human words, human love. And our tendency in viewing spiritual gifts as something that is tangible, to use this particular theologian's language, is the idea that, well, God has given that person the gift of teaching, and he's given that person the gift of wisdom, and he's given that person the gift of service, as if that gift inherently is something tangible and separated from the person of God. But what the author is intending to communicate here is, to the extent, for instance, that the words of a preacher or an author or a friend have the ability to capture your heart and stir your affections and make you long to know God better, do you understand that the power and the influence do not rest in that individual. That for as much as somebody might have an ability to communicate in a way that clicks with your mindset or explain things in a way that is understandable to you or speak to you in a way that is inspiring or motivating, do you understand that that is actually God using a human vessel to communicate and motivate and inspire and drive. The power is not in the individual, and it is not in a tangible gift separated from God. It is God himself working in and through his people. And that's important for us because when we begin to emphasize gifts over the gift giver, we inevitably end up making too much of people and not enough of God. And that leads us into verse 1, where Paul is going to begin with a very familiar verse. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, Paul's opening salvo in verse 1 is one of the most famous in all of Scripture, and it helps to remember the context of Romans to this point. In chapters 1 through 4 of the book of Romans, Paul gives us a description of the problem of humanity, namely our sinfulness and our hopelessness that everything we do is tinged with our own sinful motivations. We're seeking our own status, trying to be our own gods, or at the very best, trying to earn the favor and the affection of God that we are unable to earn because of our sinfulness. 
And in chapter 4, which is kind of a hinge point for the front end of the book of Romans, the conversation shifts and Paul begins to talk about deliverance. Where is our hope actually lying? And what he says, and what we talked about for those first three weeks, is really the answer that Paul gives in chapters 4 through 11. He says the answer for our hope, the the deliverance that we find, is in Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, once for all, that he's accomplished everything that is necessary for forgiveness of sins, for the imputation of righteousness, for our adoption as sons and daughters. And the operative question that we have been asking for the past several weeks now, uh, which is built on this idea that we've been delivered by Jesus Christ, is this. What are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? And I think we find at least one answer to that question here in chapter 12, because in this chapter, Paul moves from what we are free from to what we are free for. He's saying, before, I wasn't able to live for God because I was under the penalty and the power of sin and death. Before, I wasn't able to live for others because I had to try to measure up the law. I had to try to validate myself. I had to try to forge my own identity. But now he's saying, because of the freedom Christ has given me, I no longer have to live for myself. I no longer have to prove myself or provide my own worth because Jesus lived for me. He proved himself on my behalf, and he provided me with infinite worth. And so now I am free to live for others. In other words, my vertical acceptance with God frees me for horizontal service and relationship with others. Well, how does that actually play itself out? And we find the answer as Paul turns his attention to helping his readers connect who they are in Christ to how they ought to view themselves within the family of God and what he's gifted them to do. And that's what he begins to do in verse 3. He says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually, listen to this language, members of one another. Now I want you to see this. God has gifted every Christian, listen to that, every Christian for the work of the ministry. You have not been left out of that equation. And he says that in the second half of verse 3, he says to each according to the measure of faith that God has, has assigned. This, this whole sentiment is echoed later in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 10, where Peter writes, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. In other words, God in varying ways, different ways, unique ways, special ways has gifted and enabled his people. Your gifts are different than somebody else's. The gift set that you have is different than somebody else's. The application for those gifts is different than somebody else's. And so there is a sense in which we're going, God, we need to understand how it is you've gifted us and what it is that you want us to do with that. And I've talked to people over the years who said, well, I don't think I actually have a gift from God. 
And Paul's answer to that is going to, say, is going to be to say, you may not know what your gift is yet, but you certainly have one. That gift is given to you for the blessing and maturity of the local body. We find that in the second half of verse 4, the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And in these verses, what Paul is actually giving us is two ways not to view your spiritual gifts. He's going to tell us how we ought to view them in a moment, but here he's saying, don't view your spiritual gifts this way. And here's the first thing that he says. First, spiritual gifts are not given in order that you might make much of yourself. They're not given in order that you might make much of yourself. Verse 3, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And in some sense or another, that idea is very obvious to us. When we receive a gift, we have been given an opportunity to make much of the gift giver. It doesn't make a lot of sense to walk around bragging about what belongs to you if it was actually gifted to you. Because when we receive a gift, what is highlighted, the person who is put in the spotlight is the gift giver, not the gift itself. So it's like when you're watching basketball, which I've been doing a lot of over the last week with March Madness um, getting into full swing and all of those things. It's like when you see a guy who's six foot ten running down the court on a breakaway and he dunks the ball and then he runs away from the basket with an angry look on his face, beating his own chest. Well, he worked hard to get there. He worked hard for that height. He worked hard for that genetic ability. Now, undoubtedly, he's put work into his game, but it is uniquely unimpressive to see someone who has been genetically gifted with a 6-foot, 10-inch frame begin to brag about their ability to reach a 10-foot rim. And in the same way, says Paul, believers ought to be mindful that the gifts they've been given are not afforded to them for the purpose of self-exaltation. So when we use our God-given gifts to seek to make much of ourselves or draw attention to ourselves or promote ourselves or stir up the admiration of others for us, we are taking what belongs to God and bragging as if it belongs to us. And we have an example of how that plays out in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, where absolute chaos and relational destruction is caused within the body when those gifts are used inappropriately. But second, spiritual gifts are not given in order that you might ignore them. They're not given so that you can just sit on them. Verse 4, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So if my wife comes home one day and gives me a power tool for Christmas and I tell her how thankful I am for that gift and I tell her how much I love it and, and how much I appreciate her generosity and her thoughtfulness, but then I just throw it in the garage and I never use it and I never look at it and I never take it out of the box and I never actually put it into practice, I am not stewarding that gift well. Nor am I showing thankfulness for the one who gave it. 
And if you are not using your gifts within the context of the local assembly of believers, you are first, not functioning as God intended you to function, and second, in a very real way, you are robbing the local church of the unique gifts that only you bring. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14. Here's what he says. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And did you understand the language of what Paul just said there? He says that God, in His gracious sovereignty, arranged the members in the body. You are not here on accident. Your gifts and your skill sets and the things that God has granted to you, enabled you to do, given you affection for, are not incidental or accidental to your participation in the local body. In fact, they're necessary for the body to function properly. You have a gift, brother and sister. You have a unique and vital gift. And when you do not use that gift or even seek out what that gift might be, you are removing an important part of the life or the body. Well, I can't preach or I can't sing or I can't teach. Maybe so, but to presume that you do not have a vital role in the life of the body would be like, it'd be like being asked, which part of your body would you like to live without? We're going to lop off a limb. You get to choose what it is. Go. Tell me which one you want to live without. I mean, you might be able to pick a limb that would be the least inconvenient to lose, but you're pretty attached to all of them. And in a very similar way, Paul here is calling us to discover and use our gifts humbly and for the benefit of the church. So what then are these gifts? Well, we have a list here in Romans chapter 12. There's another one in 1 Corinthians 12. You don't need to write these down. We have something for you at the end of the service that you can take with you that'll have these listed. But Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter chapter 4. But the list we're given here, just so you understand as we're looking at it, it's not exhaustive. It's a sampling I think there's all sorts of, of reasons to presume that God will gift the body of Christ with whatever they need at a given point in time, potentially even gifts that are not explicitly listed in Scripture. But let's look at a few of the gifts that are listed here for us today. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, if we were to begin to talk about prophecy, there's been whole books written on this, conferences built around this idea. There's all kinds of discussion as to what this looks like and what this means and how it plays out in the life of the church. And our goal today is not to get bogged down in the detail. We'll save that for another time. But for the sake of our conversation this morning, what Paul is reminding us, at least implicitly, is that our faith is not purely academic. We believe in a creator God an invisible, all-powerful, eternal God. 
And what Paul is reminding us here is that he communicates to his people through his word and spirit. And the challenge that Paul puts before us is that the Holy Spirit reveals things to his people in accordance with his word for the sake of their edification. So to prophesy, at least in the simple context that's given here, is simply to share what the Holy Spirit is revealing. We find this in, in the book of Mark. We, if you remember back um, a couple of years or a year and a half, we actually preached on this. From Mark chapter 2, Jesus has just healed the paralytic, and the Pharisees are saying to themselves in their own mind, who does this guy think he is? He's telling this man that he can actually get up and walk when he's been paralyzed his whole life, and now he's forgiving him of sins. Who does this Jesus think he is? And do you remember Jesus' response in verse 8 of Mark chapter 2? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? The Holy Spirit of God revealed something to Jesus in this moment about what the Pharisees were thinking. And I was trying to think of ways to illustrate this. There's all kinds of stories that we could probably tell, but here's maybe the easiest way to communicate it. There have been all kinds of times when I've been preaching over the years, and I've said something that was not in my notes that I hadn't planned to say that wasn't on my radar as I was working through the course of the week, but I had a strong impression for whatever reason that I should say a particular thing. And I've had instances in my life where folks have come up to me after sermons, and in particular, I think of one instance where a man came up to me and he said, hey, did my wife talk to you before the service? I said, no, I, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure she didn't. And he goes, oh, because I've been going through some stuff and I was telling her about it the other day and, and what you said, and he referenced something that I had said in the sermon. He said that was, that was exactly the answer to the question that we were asking. He goes, it's like there was nobody else in the room and you wrote that just for me. And I look at that and I go, well, how do we explain things like that? Well, we explain things like that because there's a Holy Spirit who searches hearts and minds, who knows us intimately, and who's going to use whatever means he determines to use to communicate to us the things that God would have us understand. And near as I can tell, that's a similar idea to the perception of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is revealing something for a very particular application. How do you then discern what's from God versus what's our own intuition. And I think the answer we find there is actually given by Paul in this text. He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, what I don't think he's saying here is that if you have really great, pro- really great faith, you're going to have some really great prophecies. I actually don't think that's what he means. In fact, your Bibles may have a note in there where, it's, where it interprets those last two words, our faith, differently. Some translations say his faith. I don't think that's a very good translation of what Paul is writing. Many translations will say our faith, or they'll say the faith. In other words, he's saying that this prophecy is connected to the recognized orthodox teaching of Scripture. In other words, this is not some new word that countermands Scripture or adds to Scripture. When the Holy Spirit speaks in the lives of believers, it is always in accordance with the Word of God as recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures. But then he goes on and he says, if service in our serving, he says that there's actually a gift called service. And your Bible may translate it, or it could very well be translated, if ministry in our ministering. So what does that look like? Well, 
You were served today when you walked through the door and were greeted by somebody and handed a bulletin. You were served today when you went over and grabbed a cup of coffee and a snack. You are served today, if you can hear my voice coming through the speakers of this room. You were served today when Tracy sat down and led us in worship. You're being served right now if you have kids in the nursery or the school-age class today. And so you might then begin to think, well, wait a minute, isn't that just a catch-all? How is that a spiritual gift? If I greeted someone and handed them a bulletin, you're telling me that that is actually a spiritual gift, that is actually God himself working out in me what it is that he would have me do? But remember how we defined spiritual gifts, not tangible stuff, but God himself in us, energizing our souls, imparting revelation, infusing power to our wills, and working in his sovereign and gracious purposes through us. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, Peter writes this, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In other words, when you view service as an opportunity to depend upon God's strength and to draw glory to Him, you are exercising a spiritual gift. If you've ever had a conversation with a Christian who sees a need and just meets it, they may very well have the gift of serving. I remember several years ago, I I had a particular instance that happened. I had hurt my back very badly to the point where I wasn't able to move. I couldn't roll over. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't walk. I just couldn't do anything. I had this incredibly bad pain. I was on medications and all these different things trying to kind of recover from it and get back. And, And I remember as I was laying in bed, all of a sudden I heard a noise outside the window of my house. I could hear a motor running. It sounded like a lawnmower, but I literally couldn't look out the window. So I called Jessica in the room and I said, hey, is somebody out there mowing the lawn? And she goes, oh yeah, such and such from churches out here, and they're actually out mowing the lawn right now. I get a call a little bit later from another friend of mine within the church who said, hey, I'm going to drop over by your house later, and I've got this heating pad and some other things I'm going to drop off for you because uh, I want to help you out, and I know that you're in a lot of pain, and you're, you're uncomfortable, and all those kinds of things. I mean, I was down for the count, and people who knew of particular needs in my life just served without ever asking just did it. And I can tell you that those acts of service did as much to bolster my mood and encourage my soul as any sermon I've ever heard. And the funny thing about the gift of service is that if those people were to hear me using them as an illustration, they'd probably start to grow a little uncomfortable. Can you not talk about me right now? I'm just doing things behind the scenes. I'm just doing the things that need to be done. I'm not looking for, not looking for attention. The gift of service, to serve in our serving for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. The second half of verse 7, the one who teaches in his teaching. Now, this may or may not be someone who teaches in front of a large group of people, but this is somebody who enjoys digging into the Word of God, studying it out, figuring out what it is that God might have them communicate to other people about what they've discovered. They've got a knack for explaining things in a way that people can understand. Perhaps they have ability, an ability to parse difficult ideas or to explain simple truths with great clarity. And this teaching, by the way, doesn't just mean standing in a a room full of adults and and talking about complex ideas. It also looks like standing in front of a room full of children and communicating very simple ideas. 
Anybody can communicate an idea and make it sound difficult and hard. That's, that's not a difficult thing to do, but making complex ideas understandable, that's actually a gift. And I've seen it with, with kids' workers over the years. I've seen some of our teachers who've been able to communicate with our kids in a really unique way. They're able to connect with them to to communicate ideas in a way that children can understand. Certainly, we've seen it among adults as well. Paul continues with this idea in verse 8. He says, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Now, exhorting is the sister of teaching. It's actually what Paul is doing in this very passage. It's how he started in verse 1. Paul began this passage by saying, I appeal to you, brothers. Exhortation is this idea of appealing, beseeching, Someone who exhorts not only explains the Scripture, but is also able to inspire the will, to engage the mind, to encourage the soul. They take the truth of God's Word, they explain it, and they're then able to apply it to your life. So in addition to expounding the truth of God's Word, they lead the hearer to answer the question, what should I think, believe, or do now that I know the truth? And this idea may be the best way to distinguish between teaching and preaching. What's interesting about those ideas is we have an idea in our mind about what teaching and preaching is, and usually it has to do with volume and speed. Like teachers are people who talk slowly and clearly and calmly, and preachers are guys who raise their voice and talk too much. Like that's generally how we think of those ideas. But what's interesting is the Bible doesn't actually have categories for teaching and preaching that way. It seems as if this idea of exhortation is the distinction, the difference. Not just explanation, but, but in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, truth on fire, applied to the soul, applied to the mind, applied to the will. Continues, second half of verse 8, the one who contributes in generosity. Now, just like service is a gift for some, but expected of everybody, the same is true of generosity. Recognizing that generosity is born of the understanding that, ge- that God had generosity towards us. But he's saying there are some who have a very real gift for it. That they use the way that God has blessed them and enabled them in their lives, and they use it for the benefit of others through, through their own generosity. And typically we think about this in the idea of those who are wealthy, and certainly there, there, are, there are wealthy folks who have that gift of generosity, but we also see examples from this all through Scripture. I mentioned it earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as Paul's speaking to the, those in Macedonia, people who were generous, and they were generous in the middle of their own poverty. A spiritual gift of generosity. The one who leads with zeal. Now, when I read, when I read this, this one, my mind immediately jumped to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, where, where Peter writes, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In other words, Christian ministries ought to be led willingly, eagerly, and zealously. In the same way that the, that the, that the giving is to be jun, done generously, Right? That there is a way that we engage in these, in these calls and invitations of the Spirit in our lives that actually defines the way that we do it. And there are times in every area of ministry where this is not easy. There are times when there's a lot of work to do. There's times when people are stretched thin. There's times when circumstances are challenging, when difficult conversations and even confrontations are necessary, where challenges arise. And it can be tempting to just let things coast. 
But Paul is saying if ministry is not led properly, it will drift. It will become something else altogether. So lead with zeal, being faithful to what God has called you to and entrusting the outcome to Him. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Acts of mercy, seeing the pitiable circumstances of others and interceding. Caring for and serving and loving those who, for whatever reason, are are unable to care for themselves. I think of folks from within our church who've been involved in caring for women who've been abused and mistreated. Women who've been caught up in sex trafficking or abusive relationships. I think of folks who've been involved in things like adoption and foster care, providing homes that are safe and stable for kids who otherwise would not grow up with those blessings. Think of those who've offered care for single moms struggling to make ends meet. And Paul says to those, do it cheerfully. Not operating out of guilt. We're not operating out of a mere sense of pity, but we're seeing it as an opportunity to communicate the Father heart of God to those who desperately need to see it. Now, we flew through those gifts, and books have been written about each of them, but But all of this is really just a primer for the conversation of how God gifts his people. What all of these gifts have in common is that they reflect the heart of our Savior. Jesus prophesied when he spoke to the deepest needs of the woman at the well and when he corrected the twisted hearts of the Pharisees. Jesus served as he washed his disciples' feet and he healed the leper and broke bread for the 5,000. Jesus taught and exhorted like no one else ever has when he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus showed mercy in his tenderness toward the woman caught in adultery, toward Zacchaeus, the thieving tax collector, towards the children that he drew to himself when the disciples were in the midst of shooing them away. And so the question for you and I, brother and sister, is now that you are free from the penalty of sin and the burden of the law, what are you free to how is, it that you might have, how, how is it that you might have been gifted to teach or to prophesy or to give or to serve or to lead? And certainly, this is an undertaking that may take time to discover, but our hope for you, our hope for this church, our hope for anybody who calls Disciples Church home is that you would seek out how God has gifted you, that you would not let those gifts lie fallow in the ground, that you would not use those gifts towards self-aggrandizement, but to use them in the way that God would have for you. So we're going to invite you to do a few things. First, there's a handout on the table as you leave today. And that handout has on it the Scripture passages that we referenced today, the lists that are given in Scripture of those spiritual gifts. It has a couple of quotes uh, from a couple of helpful books on the idea of spiritual gifts and and how to work towards discovering what that might be in your life, what, what God might have for you. But perhaps most helpfully, it ends with three questions. It ends with three questions that will help you kind of, how do I go about thinking about the gifting of God in my life? Who has God put around me who, help, who might be able to help me understand God's gifting, who might be able to see things in me that I haven't even seen in myself, the way that God has gifted me and placed me and the particular interests that he's given and the passions that he's given? How, how is it that God might have me use these gifts? 
Second, our encouragement to you is to read Scripture and pray. Now, that's obvious, and we could say that on any week. But in the book of James, it says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. What does it look like for you to spend time through the course of this week in God's Word, reading those texts of Scripture, and just asking God, God, how is it you'd have me use the giftings you give me, or what giftings have you even given me? Because I don't see it. See what resonates with you. See what connects with your heart, what stirs your affections for God and for other people. The third suggestion would be this, serve. It's possible that you may not know what your calling is if you haven't actually exposed yourself to the opportunities in front of you. I've met all kinds of people over the years who said, man, I never realized how much I wanted to work with X until I actually was in a position to do it. So what opportunities, what gaps, what needs are in front of you within this church or outside of it that God might have for you where you could begin to exercise and see what it is that God would have you do? And fourth, and perhaps most importantly, ask those who know you. Ask those who know you. God has a unique way of using the people in our lives to reveal things about us that we didn't know about ourselves. He has a unique way of placing people around us who recognize in us our interests, our aptitudes, our giftedness to press on us to use those things for the cause of God and for the cause of the church. And that requires being known. It requires that other people actually know you and have some level of relationship with you. So let me just encourage you this way. There may be some here who've been coming around for some time, but you are totally unknown by the people around you. And I say that not as a judgment, but just as a potential observation. But you'll notice that verse 4 of Romans chapter 12 presumes your belonging. The Bible does not know of the idea of a Christian who is disconnected relationally from other believers within the context of the local church. It assumes that. It assumes that. First, that you belong to the head, that is Christ. Romans chapters 1 through 11 speak to that whole idea. But second, that you are connected to the body. So if your answer to the question of who could you ask that might help you think through, pray through, consider these things? If the answer that comes to your mind is, I've got nobody, take that as an invitation to be known. Seek out those that are around you. Come talk to Dave and I after the service. We would love the opportunity to pray with you about these things, to maybe ask some questions, to help you think through what these things might look like. But please don't let those gifts lie untouched. We're going to end today with the way that we, we're going to end the next several weeks, which, which is with silence. And the idea behind this silence is to realize this. If our spiritual gifts at their core are born of the idea that it is God himself working within us, it is actually God using us and gifting us and placing us intentionally, purposefully for his will, we need to know and hear and understand his voice in, able to be able to res- in order to be able to respond. And so we're going to take just a few minutes to be still to be silent, to hear the voice of God, to spend time with our Father, and then we'll respond to his word in worship. Let's pray, and then we'll go to silence. Dear Lord, we thank you for who you are, for your love for us, for your work in us, for your presence with us, for your pursuit of us. God, we thank you that you've made us free, 
that you've not only made us free from something, but that you've enabled us to be free to something. And so, God, our hope and our expectation is not that anything we do would be, would be motivated out of guilt or obligation, but, but rather out of a sincere desire to express the freedom that you've given us, to use the gifts in the places and with the people that you've put around us for the sake of glorifying you and encouraging one another to be the church that you would have us to be. So help us to be responsive to your word and to your spirit. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.